This is the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Two quick announcements before today's interview. First, I'm still looking for financial help to transcribe future podcasts and past ones so that folks who are hearing impaired and deaf can benefit from this podcast. If you're interested, email me, hj at plantyourself.com. Again, I'm looking for individuals, but I'm also willing for the first time to consider business sponsorships because I really want to get this done. And second, I got a new report for you. It's April. Every month there's a new report, and last month's report goes back into the archive, so you can't get the Beat the Bully report anymore. But you can now get... A new report called Food Label Literacy, How to Protect Yourself from Sneaky Marketing and Junk-Filled Products. And so this is for folks who are really trying to eat well, but you discover after the fact that some supposedly healthy food is actually full of junk, like it's got tons of sugar hiding under some other name. The front of the package has all these wonderful marketing messages. They're turning out to be bullshit. It's got more salt than a deer blind. It's full of animal-based ingredients, sneaky dairy and bones and meat, or it's this giant fat bomb waiting to explode in your stomach. So if you're having these kind of problems, it's no accident, right? Because processed food companies are trying to move as much product as possible, and they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to maximize their profits. And by and large, they don't have a responsibility to the rest of us to not make us sick and kill us prematurely with the crap that they put in them. And the U.S. government doesn't make it any easier. They collude with food manufacturers by making the nutrition facts panel as hard to read and useless as possible. So what is an overwhelmed consumer to do? The answer is get literate. And it's not that hard. It doesn't take a ton of time or a Ph.D. in biochemistry to learn how to protect yourself from junky food and misleading packaging. And I wrote it down in a free report called Food Label Literacy. And it will show you exactly how to evaluate every packaged food item so you can make food decisions for yourself and your loved ones from a place of empowerment. And when you sign up for that, you'll also get a complimentary subscription to the Big Change Bulldog, my to-the-point email newsletter that comes out just about every week. And of course, I'll never spam you. And you can raise your hand and say, stop anytime you want to stop receiving these messages. You want it? Here's how to get it. Go to plantyourself.com slash label, L-A-B-E-L, all lowercase, and there you can download your very own copy. And now on to today's show. My guest is Brian Kateman. He's a co-founder of the burgeoning reducitarian movement. If you haven't heard of it, you will. And he's one of the bright young stars in the fight to save humanities, animals, and planet Earth from spiraling into an unredeemable mess. And Bryant reached out to me about a year ago. He had this modest vision for an edited book that was designed, it wasn't designed to turn ordinary people into vegetarians or vegans, but simply to encourage them to eat less meat. The book's coming out in April, and I was absolutely shocked by the quality and diversity and number of really influential thinkers who have blurbed about this book, who are supporting it, who've contributed chapters. And this is clearly a movement that's hit a nerve, simply reducing the amount of animal products we produce. And of course, there's some blowback in the vegan community, not enough, not ethically pure, not morally responsible, too little, too late. But we discuss all that 
in the interview. And I think Brian makes some really valid points about reaching out to people where they are. And the fact that he has got such a huge coalition of people willing to say humans need to eat less meat is a testament to the fact that it's working. So without further ado, Brian Capeman, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah, you, you have a book coming out that you edited and put together, but it's so much more than a book. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about just what, what's, what's going on? Yeah, so as part of our mission to encourage people to eat less meat and provide them with strategies on how to do it, we're publishing a book. The book is called The Reducitarian Solution, and it's a compilation of essays and recipes that explore how to actually go about doing that. And I'm really excited about it because this book is, is really perfect for someone who is on the fence in terms of their interest in making a dietary switch. It's non-judgmental. It has a very soft pitch around eating less meat. It explains all of the different aspects of why someone should do that from environmental perspectives, human health perspectives, um, animal welfare perspectives, and then has plant-based and sort of reduced meat recipes to help put it into action. And we've got a lot of really great people who have contributed essays to it, including you, Howard, um, and many others. Mark Pittman wrote the forward. Um, essay contributors include Seth Godin, Victoria Morin, Joel Furman, Jeffrey Sachs, Bill Kibben, Peter Singer. It's just really anyone who's involved in the movement um, in some way has taken the time to contribute their thoughts on why it's important that people eat less meat and how they can go about doing it. So I'm really excited about it. It comes out on April 15th, uh, April 18th, forgive me. And um, yeah, it's available um, on Amazon right now. So I want to talk about the movement and the book and all that, but let's let's begin with with you and your story. What 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 uh, what is important to you about doing this? Where where do you come from? Like what what triggered your interest in this? Yeah, well, you know, when I was in college, I was you know I grew up in Staten Island, New York, which is not the most progressive of places. But um, the one thing I liked about Staten Island was it had a lot of nature. And so when I was in college, I sort of became an environmentalist. I mean, I was that guy who was advocating that people take shorter showers and carry around refillable cups with them for water and recycle whenever they could. Um, but I really never made the link between animal agriculture and many of the environmental issues that I cared about until much later in college when just a friend um, gave me uh, Peter Singer's book, The Ethics of What We Eat. And in that book, I learned about you know, the impact of conventional animal agriculture, not only on the, the treatment of animals, but also on our health and on the environment. And so, you know, it was a big deal for me because my favorite foods were like buffalo wings from Applebee's and, you know, a hamburger from Chili's, right? I'm growing up in Staten Island. We don't have, we didn't have swanky plant-based restaurants at the time. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to try out being a vegetarian. Um, and it went pretty well. I mean, I felt healthier. I felt happier. My values were in line with my actions. The problem was there were situations that were complicated, and they were rare, but they were still complicated enough. So, for example, on Thanksgiving, you know, I remember being there. All my, I don't see my family very much. I see them this this important time, and you know, everyone's eating the turkey on the table, and you know, I know they're just going to throw it out, right? If it if it's if it's not eaten, and so I decide to take uh, a piece of turkey. And I remember in that moment, my sister, you know, as siblings will do. Uh, sort of shouting across the table, I thought you were a vegetarian, Brian, sort of catching me in the act. Um, I had moments where, uh, you know, after a fun night with friends, waking up the next morning and going to IHOP and 
you know, deciding to have bacon uh, with, with, my, with my pancakes and with my eggs. And a similar experience, you know, I thought you were a vegetarian. And, you know, I would explain to people, it's not about being perfect. It's about eating as many plant-based meals as you can. But uh, calling myself a vegetarian seemed to create problems because I really wasn't perfect about it. And so I, I went home and I said, all right, I'm, I'm going to look up other, other words that describe who I am, essentially a person who's trying to reduce the amount of animal products that they consume. And so I saw flexitarian and I tried that out and I tried semi-vegetarian, mostly vegetarian. And I think those work to a certain extent. The, the challenge with them is they're, they're rigid in a sense. They describe people who primarily eat plant-based meals most of the time. But it seemed to me like there were a large proportion of people who were eating large amounts of animal products but might be open to cutting back 10% or 20% and so on. And those words really don't describe those people because even though they're making meaningful changes to their diet, the majority of their meals are meaty ones. And so in conversation with a friend, Tyler, we decided that, you know, we should come up with a word that actually describes people who are doing what I'm doing, uh, trying to cut back incrementally on the amount of animal products that they consume. And it seems like we didn't spend much time thinking about it, but we did. And reducitarian really was the word that seemed to resonate most effectively with people and uh, hopefully creates behavioral consistency because the meaning of the word um, is in the word, reduce, reduce the amount of meat that you consume. And so ever since then, it's been a crazy ride. We founded the Reducitarian Foundation two years ago in April 2015 and have been working to spread that message ever since. Okay, so there's a, uh, a leap there, though, between creating the word and creating the movement. Like, you know, I think I invented a word in middle school, but I didn't like... like tell, tell me about that. Like, what, what, uh, what inside you, and I guess you and Tyler made you go, okay, we've got a word that works better for us than other words. Now, the next logical step is, like, take over the world. <laughs> well, I think it really initially came from having conversations with people. You know, many of my friends uh, in, in college were interested, I think, in many of these related issues, moral philosophy, environmentalism, etc., and were intrigued by the idea that Tyler and I started using a new word and in, in having those conversations, realized that it resonated with a, a lot of people. And so, you know, we just decided, heck, let's go for it. We created a Squarespace website and came up with some of the concepts, um, some of our talking points. And then um, I applied for a TEDx talk and got very lucky and got it and gave the TEDx talk on the reducitarian concept. I sent it out to uh, a few media representatives and you know, the next day it was being covered by, by large uh, mainstream outlets and each day I'd wake up a new, a new one would be covering the story. And so um, we used that moment realizing that there was an opportunity here, created an Indiegogo campaign to raise some money. And um, a donor said, hey, Brian, I think you have something really special here. You should consider turning this into a nonprofit. And that donor helped us get started by Simple, simply connecting um, us with people who could turn it into a 501c3 nonprofit. And then, you know, and it, by the time April 2015 rolled around, you know, I think millions of people had heard about the reducitarian concept. We had tens of thousands of followers on our, our social platforms. We're receiving hundreds of thousands of visits to our website. So I think we just tapped into a, an existing movement. I think people were excited to reduce the amount of animal products that they consumed. They were immobilized because they really didn't have a word or a community of people who were 
interested in, in making changes to their diet without the expectation that they absolutely have to go vegan or vegetarian. And as a result, I think the reducetarian movement has blown up and more and more people are excited about it. Okay. So someone listening to this says, you know, well, I, I have an idea that I think like t ties into the zeitgeist of the times, but it doesn't seem to have. It's, but you're also like really, really savvy about PR and marketing, are you not? I mean, <laughs> well, whenever whenever I don't feel so good about myself, I'm going to come on your show, Howard, because so far this has been wonderful in terms of making me feel really good about the the work that I've done. Um, um, no, I look. I think yes, I, I I have a background in marketing and PR in terms of my skill sets, but I really do think most of this has just been persistence and 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 lucky timing. I mean, yes, there was already Meatless Monday and Weekday Vegetarianism and Vegan Before Six, and there was this existing perception that, that vegans and vegetarians are crazy and that they're nuts and that they um, are absolutist. And the truth is that many of them are not and are super open to incremental change and, and believe in celebrating plant-based plant eating. And so I think really on both sides, the timing was perfect. Omnivores really wanted um, to join this movement and make meaningful changes to their diet, understanding the link between animal agriculture um, and the impact uh, on the planet. And vegans and vegetarians wanted to hop off all the vegan cruises and all the vegan potlucks and actually make this movement increasingly more mainstream, reaching omnivores, reaching people who've never thought about eating more plant-based meals. Um, and yes, um, the, the, the fortune of um, having the skill sets to actually spread that message. But you know, creating a website is really easy. Coming up with a talking point is just an intellectual exercise that, that requires, uh, you know, having good people to, to, and thoughtful people to talk to about it. And then it's just, you know, sending emails out to reporters and asking them to cover the story. And so anyone listening to this who has a really good idea, uh, particularly hopefully an idea that's going to create positive social change, you know, you really just got to go for it um, and, you know, ask people who've had this experience before. Uh, but certainly, yeah, the, the combination of uh, perhaps some skill sets and, and lucky timing um, are, I think, part of our success. Okay, cool. So I want to cover some of the the controversy around the idea. So when you and I first talked, you reached out to me to see if I could reach out to a particular person or couple of people in the plant-based vegan community to see if they would be supportive, and they were not. Mm. Right? The, you know, the the response I got back was quite terse. This is silly. This is not. This is not meaningful change. And there is, you know, and I've been to um, plant-based events and uh, symposia where people were like making fun of Meatless Monday as, you know, a, a, a gesture that really wasn't going to bring about any sort of meaningful change. So what's, you know, what has your experience been, not necessarily trying to, you know, to, to refute those, those ideas, although you're, you're, you're welcome to, but just to kind of be in dialogue with the you know the people that you're trying to move the 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 masses toward don't seem to want anything to do with the message sure well i, I think there's there's a lot to that and these are really important questions uh, the first is i think the majority of of people in the plant-based space are actually very receptive to that and i think that was a mistake that i made in the beginning is that i really thought vegans and vegetarians might be quite hostile to the idea of reducetarianism. And yes, of course, there are some who are, and I'm happy to talk more about that. But the majority of people who wrote for the reducetarian solution are vegan, are people who would like to see a vegan world. 
but have modified their message in such a way because they understand that the the average everyday person is going to be reading this book and this might be a very great introduction for them to sort of start their reducitarian journey, meaning their journey into eating fewer animal products. So I, I was surprised by when I first started the amount of vegans and vegetarians who really were excited about this and saw the need to make plant-based eating more mainstream. Now, the, for the, the people who are, um, I suppose, less supportive of, of reducitarianism, I think there's understandable reasons why. You know, there are, there are billions upon billions of farmed animals that are suffering every day in horrid conditions known as factory farms. There are uh, countless people who are suffering from heart disease and cancer and diabetes and, and many other non-computable um, chronic diseases, and in part from large consumption of animal products and not eating enough fruits and vegetables. And we're seeing an acceleration of everything from climate change to loss of biodiversity and so on. So I'm sympathetic to the, the feeling that simply eating less meat is not enough, given how um, uh, in trouble we are in terms of the state of our planet, not only in terms of our own well-being, but many other sentient creatures. But the thing is, is that there's only progress, right? The goal is to make tomorrow a little bit better than today. And so the idea that we have to go for the perfect world, or we're not going to reach the perfect world, I think is quite the opposite. The way, the way progress happens is incredibly incremental. We know that. We know it's the same thing in, in human nature. You know, if you ask someone to make a major change in their life, they're much less likely to do it than if you ask them to make a small change. I mean, try, you know, going on a date with someone and asking them to marry them on the first date. You'll probably have more success if you give it some time. Um, I think it's really the same way for most people with, with dietary change. Asking someone to make a small change, like eat less meat, is going to increase the chances that they're going to be vegetarian. It's going to increase the chances that they're going to be vegan. Now, I con confess, I don't think the goal is to generate vegans. That's really not my goal. My goal is to make the world a better place, to make a happier place for animals and for people. And I think the best way to do that is to focus on reducing societal consumption of animal products. So I'm much more excited about a person who, I'm excited about 20 people who cut back 10% of their meat consumption than I am one person about uh, cutting back 100%. And that's because I think that the benefits to the animals and to the planet and to humans is, is, much, is much greater that way. But like I said, we're still on the same team because people who eat less meat are more likely to go vegetarian. People who are vegetarian are more likely to go vegan. So I, I hear people, you know, say we don't have time to wait, right? We're, at a, we're in a crisis. We have to get the world to go vegan today. But to be blunt, if, if that's the answer, then we're incredibly screwed because the world is not going to go vegan tomorrow. So if, if we don't have time, then we should just accept that and we should try and minimize suffering as much as possible in the meantime. But I take a much more optimistic outlook. I do think we have time and I think we have no other choice but to embrace incremental progress because that's just how the moral arc bends. It's the same way for all these other social justice issues that we're seeing right now today. They do not get solved overnight. They require painful pragmatism and patience. And I'm very grateful to all of the, the vegans and vegetarians um, who are excited about reducitarianism and understand that we actually share a common goal. Uh, because at the end of the day, together we're going to accomplish a lot more than if we work in isolation and in silos. Um. Sorry, I'm blanking for a second because uh, I, I have three three competing thoughts. 
that I wanted to, to touch on. Um, uh, one, one is, I, I think I read it in some of the, the marketing for the, for the reduced herring solution. It was like a mathematical look. I think, I can't remember. I think I read it in one, one of your uh, press mm. releases or things. Sort of like comparing like one person going vegan to, you know, a, a person even just cutting back from like seven meat days to four or something like that. Yeah. Let me, let me give you an example of that. I think of my parents who are, or sort of, uh, I don't know, in my mind, the, the classic American maybe. I think my parents probably eat well over 200 pounds of meat a year. They still ask me, though they're incredibly loving people, they ask me, are you still doing that vegan thing? Just to give you, <laughs> give you a sense of the perception. And um, uh, so if my, if my dad were to cut back 10% of his meat consumption, let's say that would be from 10 to, sorry, to 200 pounds, 10%, that's 20 pounds, right? Versus if you get someone who is eating 5 or 10 pounds meat a year to go 100%, just go vegetarian already, you tell that person, right? that is a five or 10 pound reduction. So between getting my father to cut back 10% or getting that individual who's a flexitarian or, or mostly be vegetarian to go 100%, that's gonna only be 10, 10 pounds. So the difference is double, at least double in the scenario of my father. So I don't understand the, why worry about people at all who are primarily eating plant-based foods? To me, it's almost laughable. I mean, why get caught up in someone who's exercising five times a week you should exercise that sixth and seventh day. We're not really concerned about um, the people who are doing a really, really, really good job, are we? My parents almost never eat fruits and vegetables. When I tell them that they should have their fruits and vegetables, they tell me they don't like the taste of it. When my dad eats a piece of broccoli, I'm really excited because he really needs it because he's not getting the, the nutrients that he needs in order to, to be on this planet um, as long as possible. And so I just um, think we should recognize that most people are not eating a single serving of fruits and vegetables a day. And we would be a lot more um, impactful, not only in terms of people's health and the planet, but also sparing farmed animals from a lifetime of suffering. If we focus on these big wins, if we focus on reaching the people that are eating an insane amount of animal products, getting them to cut back. And like I said, people who cut back are more likely to go vegetarian and vegan anyway. So I really um, advocate for moving away from this idea of perfection or purity. It's not about being perfect. It's not about purity. It's about incorporating as many plant-based meals into your lifestyle as possible because those meals are going to be healthier and more compassionate and environmentally friendly. But if you fall off the bandwagon, as they say, or, you know, I, these terms cheating vegan or lazy vegetarian, they make me so mad. Because those people that get called those terrible terms are the people that are eating mostly plant-based foods. With the word we use to describe an everyday person is an omnivore. That's a lot nicer than calling <laughs> someone lazy or a cheater. And so what the reducitarian movement is about is celebrating every single plant-based meal that someone chooses to eat and recognizing that that's a really great thing and supporting them. Because, you know, I, when people yell at me, it, it, it doesn't make me want to change. It makes me put up walls. Um, I just find that um, it, it's not an effective tool. Uh, I mean, have you, have you had that, Howard? You know, someone yells at you and wants you to make a change and, you know, you're suddenly much more receptive to it. It seems yeah, like... Right. I, I just, <laughs> I can't help but thank them, you know, in, in the moment. <laughs> well, you're... Yeah, I, I'm that enlightened. Yeah, right now. <laughs> Well, you're you're a pretty incredible person. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm also lying. So, I mean, that that remind. There's sort of three 
three bits there that that popped up. One one is, you know, if in the plant-based movement, if if we want to make a living, the people that are easiest to talk to are <laughs> the almost vegans or the mostly vegans or the junk food vegans that we want to turn into health food vegans, right? So it's like the, that that uh, that story about the guy searching under the lamppost for his keys, right? So it's easier to talk to those people than to go out and have conversations with Americans who are eating all meat and no vegetables. I, um, I think that's partly right. Um, I think, you know, certainly someone um, who is already on this journey is going to be much more excited to talk to you about, you know, plant-based eating. Um, and uh, um, uh, so that, that certainly resonates with me. But I do want to mention there's this really amazing new term I learned called horizontal hostility. Have you ever heard of it before? No. It describes um, individuals who share a lot of common values who actually dislike each other more than they do someone who doesn't share those oh. values at all. So, like, I think of Yankees and Mets fans who really don't like each other versus some other uh, baseball team or, like, a Protestant and a Baptist um, who seem to think that they disagree so much even though they have much more in common. Sure. I, do, you, do you know uh, Emo Phillips' joke about that? I, I may, but if you know it from horror, it's quite long. I, it is quite long. <laughs> you, you, but you know what I'm talking about. I do, I do. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's it's really it's really just uh, quite quite great. Um, uh, yeah. So um, I think that's a common situation we see among vegans, vegetarians, flexitarians, etc. I mean, you know, on the one hand, yes, um, I think vegans are going to have much more success in talking to a vegetarian, right, and trying to get them to go vegan than they are someone who eats animal products every day. But on the other hand, I often find that vegans and vegetarians, there's tension there because there's, they understand all the issues so well, and yet they're not 100% aligned um, on this issue. I mean, a vegan looks at a vegetarian and says, you know, why haven't you just gone vegan already? Right, yeah. it's just it's just insane. You understand all this stuff, versus when they see an omnivore, I think they're 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 more forgiving. I find this across across motivations too. You know, an environmentalist or an animal welfare advocate or a human health expert. You know, they all agree uh, that eating less meat is a good idea. They often are often uh, against factory farming altogether. But instead, we get into these these bickerings about you know what do you think about farms that treat the animals better or you know, isn't 90% enough? I mean, is it really necessary that people go vegan? And we spend all this time arguing amongst each other when we need each other so badly because we agree so much with each other. But we worry about these sort of long-distance um, uh, things that, that actually are, are really not within our proximity to change anyway. I mean, just getting people to eat 30% plant-based would be a real achievement. Just getting rid of factory farms altogether would be a real achievement. And so I know I'm sort of meandering here, but I do think there's some interesting synergy there. You know, it's easier, it's easier to get um, a vegetarian to go vegan, perhaps, and yet there's almost more tension between those two than, than an omnivore. And I'm just fascinated by some of these, these sort of perceptions and, and, and cultural experiences that, that we commonly see. Sure. And, and, and another um, sort of default way of human thinking that I think you're up against and I think your movement is is tackling head-on is this concept of the base rate right so when you talk about your parents cutting back 10 percent you know Dan Ariely explained this to me in terms of like if you have two vehicles if you have like a Prius and a uh, you know a dump truck <laughs> and you can instead of a dump truck that gets three miles to the gallon you could move up to uh, you know a a flatbed Ford pickup that gets seven miles to the gallon, 
versus moving from your Prius that gets 50 to a Tesla that gets, you know, 150. Yeah. Just, just, and most people would think, well, you know, you, do, you get much more by moving to the Tesla. But in fact, if you just increase by one gallon per mile on the worst vehicle, you're doing much better, assuming you drive them both the same distance, you know, in a year. And that's like, it, it just doesn't seem like it would make that big of a difference for your, for your parents to have 10% less meat just just from a, the way our brains work. It just doesn't seem like that big a deal, but when you do the math, it really is. Yeah, I think our brains are just designed to think in black and white terms. You know, we really resist um, the cognitive dissonance as best we can, and, uh, but that, I mean, that's completely right. I mean, it's, it's my parents who could benefit in terms of their health you know, they really need to eat fruits and vegetables and to exercise once in a while um, versus, let's say, a flexitarian who's doing it most of the time anyway. So it's just fascinating psychologically, and I, I think it's a real problem. And I think people should actively work to move against this idea that, um, that it has to be all or nothing and emphasize that perfection really is the enemy of the good because it, it just entirely immobilizes people. I think, you know, even for myself, you know, when I think about my New Year's resolutions, um, you know, every time I say I'm going to go to the gym four times a week this year, I'm going to do it forever. It's just, it's so intense. It's so hard to imagine. But simply saying, you know, I'm going to, I don't know, I'm going to buy sneakers today or I'm going to go to the gym once a week. And then you realize how much you actually like it and how much you enjoy it. And then it gets a lot easier. So I really suggest we just focus on putting people on the path. Um, and and that, that's a great place to start. Right. And there's also the other thing I was looking at was thinking about as you were speaking was the the research on commitment. Uh, I don't know if you know this, the sort of famous studies of people going around trying to get people to put big lawn signs for wearing seatbelts, mm -hmm. you know, these big, ugly lawn signs. And nobody wanted to do that. And then they went around to a, a different but similar socioeconomic neighborhood and said, would you put these tiny little window decals in? Yeah. Um, this is Robert Cialdini's work, I think, perhaps. Yeah, I think it, may, it might have been his group, or he certainly reported on it. Yeah. And, right? And then after they did that, then it was easier to get them to agree to the big, ugly lawn signs because they, they had now aligned themselves with this, with this mission. So if, you, if your dad suddenly says, I am functionally and intentionally cutting back on my meat, then all of a sudden he is amenable to the kind of moral exhortions that otherwise would have put him on the defensive. Yeah, I really, I love that. I love that study and I love this concept. And I, I think it's just intuitively, you know, it's easier to get people to commit to a small task than a large one. And once they commit, they're much more likely to be consistent with their choices. It's one of the reasons I love the word reducitarian so much is because I'm trying to uh, create a positive identity, a reinforcing identity. You know, there are a number of studies show that when people um, you know, perform behaviors that are then latched onto some identity, they're much more likely to repeat those behaviors. We like to be consistent with how we feel about ourselves. You know, sometimes we get criticized like we're just focusing on behavioral change, for example, but I don't see it like that at all. I see it as we're trying to get people to, to change their behaviors, but the ultimate goal is that they also start to, to think about these issues, right? We want people down the line, if there was ever some ballot around, you know, uh, initiatives for a school to add more plant-based meals to the, to the menu, that they would say yes. Or that if there was some animal cruelty um, um, issue going on, that they would vote yes, I'm against that. You know, I think using the combination of, of, of small commitments 
getting people to change their behavior, and then seeing that it actually can inform their attitudes and, and change their identities is incredibly powerful. And so I'm, I'm with you on that, Howard. I love the idea of, of, uh, of commitment. Cool. So I do want to cover what just blew me away. So if you go to your website, reducitarian.org slash book, and you look at the list of people who have provided advanced praise for the Reducitarian Solution, I'm frankly looking at this and going, holy shit, how did he do that? <laughs> you know, from Deepak Chopra to Steven Pinker to Richard Dawkins to, to you know, Daniel Pink, Noam Chomsky, <laughs> Susan Cain, Andrew Solomon, I mean, Doug Rushkoff. This is, this is remarkable. How the hell did you do this? Well, look, I think there's the first, the first thing is, you know, I love what this book has done because I think it's given some of these thought leaders an opportunity for them to say, hey, I really do support reducing societal meat consumption and I care about animals, I care about the planet, I care about human health. If, if the book had been called The Vegan Solution, I don't think many of these people would have been down to put their name on it and blurb it. And so part of what we're trying to do is reach people who have large audiences and ask them to help spread the message and to, and to spread the word. And I, so I'm very proud of, uh, of the role that the book has played in helping us connect with some of these thought leaders. And, and, and you know, Michael Pollan has tweeted it. Richard Dawkins has tweeted it. Um, we have just amazing reach um, through these, these incredible thought leaders. The, the truth is that part of it is getting, um, in terms of actually achieving this, uh, part of it is getting someone high profile early on who cares about this. So, um, you know, once you have, uh, let's say, I don't know, Richard Dawkins, it's not that hard to get Sam Harris because they have, you know, a lot of right. views in mind. Um, once you get Michael Shermer, who's a huge supporter of Reducitarian, you know, he's friends with Deepak Chopra. And so there's opportunities to um, continue to scale some of these connections and endorsements. So I think that's, that's the tactic part is, is using social proof, using the idea that, you know, people who... Um, have already endorsed the book are, are quite awesome and so awesome people are going to be attracted to that and be more willing to uh, put their name on it but I'm more in intrigued by the the message itself the fact that these people have signed on is not just a result of social proof it's also because the book and the, the messaging is written in such a mainstream way that it allows people to be excited about it and I really love Steven Pinker's quote in particular about how you know two go, going from two burgers to one burger saves as many cows as going from one burger to zero burgers. Oh, and that's I, probably what I, what I was thinking of. <laughs> oh, cool. Earlier. Yeah. That's where I saw it. That's right. Yeah, and I think that really, I think that uh, in as amazing as Steven Pinker would describe it in that very simple way, uh, I think that really gets at what we're trying to do here is, is really make it clear that every plant-based meal you have is, is one that is of value. And so I think all of these contributors and the blurbers and hopefully the media are going to be excited about this message and continue to help us spread the word. Right. The other thing that, that strikes me is that you know a lot of these people are are influential because they have extremely strong views that they're not willing to compromise on. Mm. So so you know it's like it's hard for me to imagine Richard Dawkins and Deepak Chopra sitting a lot, sitting around and like really getting along. <laughs> but they've all kind of come together all these people with, with, you know, very, I mean, some of them have sort of very doctrinaire views and yet have all embraced your view of 
practical compromise in a sense. And this is what's so amazing is that, you know, this, this movement, we can make this happen. People are supportive generally around reducing societal consumption of animal products. That's, that's an incredible thing. And you're right. Many of these, these blurbers, you know, they, they fundamentally disagree on so many topics in very intense ways. But they all agree that reducing societal consumption of animal products is a good idea. And it's really the premise of our upcoming conference in May as well. You know, all these environmental groups and human health groups and animal groups, yes, they, they experience horizontal hostility. They, they differ on very specific points. But they're all against factory farming. And they all want to see a world in which people eat more plant-based meals. And to be clear, that world does not exist yet. That world is difficult to achieve. And so to worry about getting to a vegan world when the world is so screwed up at its present moment that even an incremental change is difficult to achieve, why not work together on accomplishing that goal? Let's make this happen. And then once we ex you know, celebrate that moment, then we can worry about the next step. But I, so love I, the, I love the <laughs> irony in you know noticing that the world really sucks and having that be the premise of a really optimistic solution. <laughs> well, I think you've you've tapped into some part of my personality there. <laughs> <laughs> so we only we only have a couple of minutes before you have to go. But tell us about the summit. How can people find out more? How can they show up? And where can they get the book? Sure, sure. Well, the the book is available and will be available on April 18th in every major realtor. And you can go to our website, reducetarian.org slash book to learn more about it and to see. Uh, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, etc. Um, the summit is May 20th and 21st at NYU in New York City. And the idea of the summit is much like I said. You know, how do we as individuals, organizations, communities, societies, etc., work to systematically reduce societal consumption of animal products. The question is, is how, not why. Everyone in that room will understand that reducing societal consumption of animal products is a good idea. We are going to be united on that front. For two days, we're going to have an experiment where we all say, hey, you know what? We have a lot of common ground. We really agree with one another. Let's make this happen. And so the question is, how can we go about doing that? Are we going to use marketing tactics? Are we going to leverage policy initiatives? Are we going to rely on the future of food? What about um, uh, impact investing and social entrepreneurship? And so we just have an incredible um, uh, lineup of speakers and moderators. I mean, you know, the moderators are Bon Appetit, Huffington Post, USA Today, Vice, Time Magazine, Grub Street, The Atlantic. It's just extraordinary. And then our speakers are, are equally extraordinary from, you know, the Humane Society and Memphis Meats and Hampton Creek and Oxnard America and Slow Food USA and the list goes on and on. And so you can learn more about the summit at reducetarian.org slash summit. And we'd love to have you there. You know, we want people who are thoughtful, who are pragmatic, who are excited to, to grow this movement and make it mainstream and really make a difference for animals and the planet and for people's health. And so I'm really excited about the, the future of our work and excited about the future of our, just the entire reducitarian community. That's, that's so awesome. And, and the, the thought of, you know, people coming together to ask the question, how, it's, it's just such an empowering question. And, you know, as a coach, I love it when my clients, you know, switch from like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Like everyone wants to, you know, analyze themselves and figure out like, what's, what's causing me to do these behaviors? What is, and, and as soon as they switch to how, like, how can I change? All of a sudden, the, the just, you can just feel the power surging and, and their energy rising and their optimism increasing. 
and their efficacy growing. And it sounds like that's what you're you're bringing together a group of people who are hyper ready to ask that question and then roll up their sleeves and try stuff. I, I agree. There's something very powerful about the how because it implies just that people are on the same page and they and they want to make it happen. And so, you know, I've just been to so many conferences that are really interesting, you know, talking about yeah, you know, what kind what what I don't know, what kind of world do we want to see? And, you know, do we care about wild animal suffering and all sorts of other interesting philosophical questions? But I think for these particular two days we're just going to ask some some pragmatic, strategic questions. And hopefully that will start the, the opportunities for collaboration. I love the idea of, of an animal rights group and a human health group and an environmental group all working together to achieve some common end. Together we're going to just be so much more impactful and stronger. And given how much we agree um, and how much common ground there is, and again, how screwed up the world is and how difficult it is to make even an incremental change, I think we should be excited about, about making that happen. The, you know, the optimistic part is that because the world is screwed up, there's so much opportunity to make a change. I mean, that's what gets me up in the morning, right? It's just, there, there's, unfortunately, there's so much suffering in the world that we have to do everything we can to make it better. And you know, every time someone has a plant-based meal, we help that movement forward. And so I don't want people to be, to be feeling down about this. I think it's really an optimistic message that we can work together there's a lot of common ground here, and you know I'm looking forward to a day when factory farming is gone and people are eating fruits and vegetables. And you know it's it may take some time, but we're gonna we're gonna get there. Right. It's almost it's almost like you're saying that uh, ideological purity is a is a luxury we can't afford when when there's so much suffering. Agreed. Yeah. Well said. Well, cool. hey, one more question: Is there an audio book? There is an audio book. Who reads it? Um, there are two beautifully narrated narrators who, who are reading it. Um, my, my voice perhaps is better left for your podcast than for narrating the book. The, the Graham Halstead and Amanda um, Ronconi are narrating it, and that also is uh, available on Amazon. Awesome, because most of my friends are too busy to actually turn pages these days. So uh, it's good, cool. good to know there'll be an audio version. Awesome. Well, Brian Cateman, I'm, I'm so impressed at everything you've put together. You know, you make it sound like, you know, yeah, it's, it's a message whose time has come and, and there was some luck involved. But being a marketer myself, I know how much persistence must have been the key ingredient, even with, even with everything else going perfectly. The, you know, the blood, sweat and tears from you and your team are, are so clear in to me and i think i think will be and should be to, to others that you've really you know you you could probably be a a millionaire many times over with this, <laughs> with this with with your your energy your knowledge your your wit and your ability to make connections and you've you've chosen to to put it all in the service of a better world and i just i'm, I'm so happy you are in the in the in the the universe that i'm in well, you're very sweet, Howard. I, I really appreciate that. And I prom I'll make this promise now. If I'm ever a millionaire, I, I promise to donate most of it away to advance advance these causes. So there's lots of ways to to make a dent in this movement and I'm really excited to be a part of part of uh, part of it in the particular role that I'm playing at the moment. Awesome. Well I'll i I'll send you a Patreon link for the podcast then. <laughs> Great, awesome. Just in case. <laughs> Just in case. I'll send it I'll send it to you daily for the next thirty years. <laughs> no <in> pressure. <laughs> Awesome. All right, Brian, th thanks for your time. Thanks for all you do. And we'll, we'll catch up again soon. Well, I very much appreciate it, Howard. Thanks again for having me on your podcast. Sure thing. Bye-bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. 
For more information about the Big Change Program led by me and Josh Lajani, visit bigchangeprogram.com. And be sure to check out the show notes for today's episode with links to everything we talked about at plantyourself.com slash 204. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 203 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you get the podcast, but not the Big Change Bulldog, you can sign up and get the label literacy report at plantyourself.com slash label. Big thanks to the stalwart patrons of the Plant Yourself podcast, who include... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Marrow, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kanofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Hellman, Victoria Dolomanova, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julian Rowland, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus. Oh, Kelly, you stopped me. All right. Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, and Jeanette Benham for your generous support of the podcast. And thanks also to Troubadour, Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. If you would like to support this show, you can share this and other episodes on social media via email, tattoos, bugles, whatever. You can write a review on iTunes could really use a bunch. We're, we're, lag, we're lagging behind in that department. And of course, you can become a patron of the show. You can become a regular old patron at Patreon or via PayPal. And you can find those links at plantyourself.com, right sidebar. You can also help me, as I mentioned in the intro, to transcribe episodes, past and future, so that folks who are hearing impaired and deaf can also benefit from the conversations we have. I don't have much garden news or running news since I'm actually recording this about 12 minutes after I recorded the outro to last week's podcast because I'm going away for a week. Actually, when you listen to this, I will have been away for a week and back. I will have had a wonderful time, I hope, I believe, at Marshall Health Fest, and I'll be preparing for a week of work with Josh Lajani on world domination through the Big Change Program and running together in the Crescent City Classic. So in terms of running news and garden news, got no idea. That's all I got for this week. So as always, be well, my friends.